Money FM 89.3, the best of the breakfast huddle. It is now time for a Washington report. That's right, where we shine a spotlight on headlines coming out of the United States. We've got the crucial Senate races that we should be looking out for to in the upcoming midterm elections to former U.S. President Donald Trump deposition last week by sitting through a hurricane. Let's get some analysis on this with uh, Stephen Oliver, Assistant Professor of Social Sciences, Political Science at Yale and U.S. College. Good morning, Prof. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me. Another week, more headlines out of the states. Let's start off with uh, control of the U.S. Senate. That's at stake in the November 8th midterm elections. Republicans need to pick up only one seat to win control of the 100-seat chamber. That'll allow them to, well, block a lot of President Biden's agenda. Right now, it's 50-50. Prof, Senate races we should be looking out for this midterm. Which do you think are the most crucial here and why? So the most crucial races right now are probably in Georgia and Nevada, where in both cases you have Democratic incumbents who are defending against Republican challengers. In addition to that, there's also important races, arguably in Pennsylvania and potentially in Wisconsin. So why are these races crucial? Well, they're crucial because, as you say, only one seat is needed by the Republicans in order to flip control of the chamber and to basically take control of the legislative agenda in the upper house. And also that the polls are really, or rather the margins right now in terms of polling, they're really, really narrow in these seats. So, for example, if the Republicans can flip Georgia and or Nevada where the Dems are defending and can hold everywhere else, they'll control the Senate. Alternatively, if the Dems can keep what are concurrently very narrow leads that they have in polling in Georgia and Nevada and right, realize those on Election Day, and also it's John Fetterman, right, who is currently running as their candidate in Pennsylvania, can keep his sort of polling lead and win, the Dems can potentially hold on or even widen their margin. Okay. So it's, in a way, still quite 50-50, or, or is there a, a better forecast that's uh, from the United States right now? It's safe to say right now <laughs> that the U.S. Senate is a toss-up. Oh, dear. Okay. Prof, we also have the issue of former U.S. President Donald Trump avoiding deposition last week by being in Mar-a-Lago. What exactly is his play here? Plus, it was all in the midst of that uh, Hurricane Ian. Well, I mean, I, I think it's safe to say that his play, or at least in terms of games, was not golf because he wasn't playing <laughs> golf at his club during Hurricane Ian. So what exactly is the legal game that he was playing here? It's hard to say. Uh, the allegations made by the lawyers uh, who were supposed to go and handle the deposition is essentially that you know, he was being unreasonable and that he was introducing delays into what would otherwise have been sort of a, a standard deposition by refusing to leave Mar-a-Lago amidst Hurricane Ian. Mm. Now, uh, this would, of course, seem to fit a general pattern of uh, Donald Trump's legal representation, using available opportunities to introduce delays in the legal proceedings. But at the same time, you know, delaying proceedings doesn't mean you don't have to do the deposition. Mm. Okay, so what happens from here then? So the magistrate judge overseeing this particular suit, and so it's it's ultimately this is part of a class action, or the deposition Mm. is part of a class action lawsuit alleging fraud by the Trump organization, ended up extending the deadline within which the team of lawyers who are supposed to depose Trump uh, will be able to do so to October 31st. So presumably at this point they're rescheduling, and indeed a, a month's delay has been introduced into this particular suit. But 
Trump will still, once the hurricane clears and the sun comes out, have to go and be deposed as part of this case. Mm. Um, Professor, let's let's talk about that hurricane, uh, Hurricane Ian. That is, um, it's been a week now. What what is the fallout we're seeing so far? Mm. So, in terms of fallout, right? So, what we know so far is that the current death toll from the storm in Florida is, uh, I believe, as of this morning, right? Uh, that figure is, of course, still expected to rise in the coming days. So, in the parts of uh, at least the state of Florida, which has seen sort of the hardest hit within uh, the United States. About 800,000 homes and businesses still without power on Sunday, uh, and a smaller number in sort of South and North Carolina where the storm made later landfall. So um, in the most affected areas, roads, bridges, infrastructure have been destroyed, making mobility a challenge. But really the full extent of the damage has yet to be accounted for. Okay. But it does raise, well, I mean, this conversation has been going on, but it kind of re-raises the question of climate change being one. Um, and the other question uh, in terms of, you know, recovery plans, the whole infrastructure issue that's been plaguing the United States for a while now. Mm, indeed. Um, I mean, so in terms of recovery here, um, so President Biden has already declared Florida a federal disaster area uh, back on Thursday. And so this, of course, gives state and local government access to federal disaster relief funds. They'll be visiting the state on Wednesday. Um, so, you know, the focus at the moment is not on the long term. The focus is rather on reestablishing access to basic services, electricity, clean water, transportation, However, in the long run, as you point out, right, that this is going to be an incredibly costly uh, disaster. And, and it's probably not the last one uh, of its sort of scope or magnitude that we're going to see. And given a sense of the scope of the magnitude in terms of property losses, right, the Insurance Information Institute, an industry trade group, has already estimated the storm could cause upwards of U.S. dollars, $60 billion in property losses in Florida alone, so in Singapore dollars current Singapore dollars, that's $85 billion, right? This would make uh, Hurricane Ian the second largest catastrophe loss event on record following 2005's Hurricane Katrina. It's a one in 500 year storm event, but uh, it may not be 500 years that we have to wait until we see another like it. Mm. How does this, I mean, and correct me if I'm barking up the wrong tree here, but how do these issues that you've just pointed out, could they play out in the race for the Senate? You know, the the idea of infrastructure, how best to, to recover from such disasters and climate change as well? Mm. Well, I mean, so in the Senate, uh, so currently Marco Rubio in Florida is up for election and he faces a strong challenger uh, in the form of Val So though Florida isn't considered to be one of those um, toss-up or too-close-to-call races, and, and Rubio retained the lead, there is the possibility that the storm could, in fact, go and bring Florida back into play. Mm. And one of the ways in which this could happen is the fact that Rubio, along with many other Senate Republicans, has voted against or you know attempted to frustrate some of the climate agenda as well as some of the infrastructure agenda that the Biden administration has been pushing through. And so you better believe that Rubio's opponent in the Senate race for Florida, Val Demings, is going to go and going to bring back his votes and his stances on these issues in an attempt to damage him before November 8th. Whether or not that will sort of uh, help Val Demings and potentially bring another state into play, well, uh, it remains to be seen. 
still mm. pretty early uh, to see, you know, it, the, the effects of the storm have to, in some sense, kind of soak in first. Okay. Uh, Professor, uh, and, and finally, uh, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, talking about uh, climate change, uh, has asked China to resume cooperation. Uh, among that has offered uh, congratulations ahead of uh, the Republic of China's National Day. What else can you tell us about his message to China? Well, I mean, so the message to China on uh, congratulating the Chinese people on China's National Day, October 1st, right, um, this is ultimately kind of a normal thing. Right. So the U.S. Secretary of State is in the practice of issuing these messages. And it's part of public diplomacy, usually conducted by the U.S. State Department, with little to suggest some sort of hidden motive or, or special message behind it. And if you put this year's statement up next to last year's statement, right, really the only difference that you can see uh, between the two statements is in the specificity of suggesting areas where right, uh, the People's Republic of China and the United States could potentially cooperate for mutual benefit or rather where their interests intersect. And, and so the specific issues which uh, came up in the message itself were issues or global challenges in health, climate change, and counter-narcotics. Now, this statement itself, right, uh, I mean, it is ultimately a reflection of the U.S.'s stance or really a long-standing public stance with respect to the PRC, which is to say when issues or rather when the um, U.S. and China find themselves at loggerheads on many issues or potentially in competition with one another, to instead focus on the areas where right, mutual interests exist and where cooperation and gains from cooperation can in fact be had. And indeed, right, uh, on issues such as climate change, the potential consequences for both countries in the long run are substantial, and there is potential, uh, or there is a substantial potential for gains from a cooperative relationship, at least on these issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, Prof, just finally, I mean, uh, there sh- there also has to be this preparation for the Chinese President Xi Jinping's looming third term as well. Politically, this could be quite a tricky situation to get through, considering the amount of so-called friction that's uh, come before this. Well, indeed, right? It seems all but certain at this point that yeah. Xi Jinping will be continuing as president, right? Uh, president of China, um, and so will uh, you know it will all be definitive as of uh, the 20th CCP Congress, where he will presumably be reelected into the Chinese Communist Party's top leadership and top leadership post. So, um, if, in terms of the U.S. and how it can prepare itself, right, for this. Well, I, it's to say that the U.S., of course, shouldn't expect any sort of abrupt change. While mm-hmm. Xi Jinping starting his third term is uh, does mark sort of a disruption of a, a pattern of leadership succession, mm-hmm. right, within the Chinese Communist Party that has been playing out for the last two decades, it doesn't represent a disruption in terms of, right, who, who you find yourself across the negotiating table mm-hmm. from, what their interests and what their view of the world is. And so... Even though, right, there, there is some disruption that's going on here, right, uh, in terms of the U.S.-China relationship, there, there's no profound reason to believe that, you know, uh, as, of, as of the fall, that there will be a sudden change in behavior or right. change in stance. Um, that, of course, uh, is both good and, you know, can also be seen as, you know, not so good. Nevertheless, right, at least in the short to immediate term, 
right? Consistency, I think, is what we can expect. Mm-hmm. Oh, I appreciate your insight this morning. I've been speaking with Stephen Oliver, who is Assistant Professor of Social Sciences, Political Science at Yale NUS College. Professor, thank you again for your time. Take care and have a great day. You too. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.